The following story is a retelling of a series of events that occurred a long time ago. It is the second part in a three-part series dedicated to exploring performed storytelling methods within the genres of violent historical true crime. The following version deals with violent topics, including racism, slavery, assault, murder, and fear. If you are at any point uncomfortable, I urge you to pause or stop listening. Your emotional safety during this listening experience is the priority, but I do hope you find something of value in this series as a whole. The stage is set. The metaphorical curtain is shut. And the overture will now begin. Good day to you! If you listened to my podcast last time, I'm sure you're wondering what more I could possibly say about a lone enslaver from the 1830s. The answer, I can assure you, is a lot more. If you're here for the first time, I strongly suggest that you listen to part one of this story, as doing so will provide you with more depth and context from which to understand today's episode. I'll give you a moment to think about it. If you are still here, I'm going to assume you'd like to hear more about the ghosts who haunt the old New Orleans house on Royal Street that used to belong to a certain Delphine Lalaurie. If you remember, I told you that Lalaurie committed many crimes. She was an enslaver and a murderer who escaped prosecution due to her wealth. Last time, I told you about her victims, or what little we know of them. Perhaps, now that your appetite has been whetted, you're interested in hearing more about the ghostly experiences that torment visitors of this corner of the French Quarter. If you are, then I must admit you may be disappointed in today's story. Today, dear listener, is not about a sensationalist murder. Today is about finding the truth. And the truth, after everything you hear, may disturb you more profoundly than the simple ghostly tale woven for you when we first met. Delphine McCarthy de Lopez Blanc Lalari did indeed purchase the house at the corner of 1140 Royal Street from a certain Edmund Sonia Dufossat in 1831. Leonard Nicolas Lalari was indeed a surgeon and Delphine's third husband. The rest of the story we all know today, however, is contentious at best. We can assume a great many things about the Lalaries and their crimes, but for the most part, unfortunately, we can only assume. We can assume that the lavish French Quarter New Orleans society did not find Delphine Lalaurie to be a reputable woman. Lalaurie, after all, behaved scandalously, particularly when she chose to marry a third husband. This third marriage effectively deprived eligible society women of a man who happened to be younger than Delphine and very handsome to boot. We can assume that, despite the gossip, those same socialites very much enjoyed the dinner parties that the Ladaris regularly hosted in their home. 
As a scholar who has done her research, however, I can safely tell you that our story is built on a great deal of assumption. In fact, wonderful authors who have famously tackled the task of finding the true story, such as Victoria Cosner Love and Lorelai Shannon, inevitably preface their book with a warning that they cannot guarantee the truth of their findings. Despite this, the most gruesome version of events remains the most popular and most believed retelling. That version is also the one I presented to you in our first story. With that being said, I'm going to attempt to tell you another story. This one will have the same characters, or real historic figures if you prefer. It will have the same setting, but will be told through the eyes of history. Today, I will be telling you the story of the Lalaris through an archival lens. It's important to mention that most of the information provided here, gathered from the New Orleans Library archives, was documented by newspapers and tabloids. There will be plot holes, and you will most definitely have questions. I'll try to fill the gaps with my own interpretation of the events, but this retelling should help paint a more detailed history. begin our tale in 1831, when a young surgeon and his older, wealthy wife moved into a beautiful mansion in the French Quarter of New Orleans. The wife, known as Delphine Lalaurie, had five children, born of previous unions. Most agree that only two or three of Delphine's daughters moved into the mansion with their mother and stepfather, but they are not vital to our knowledge of the events that took place. Very little exists in terms of information regarding the daughters. Even valid marriage licenses are difficult to find. The most accurately preserved paperwork from the era is documentation related to the mansion itself. Today, it stands as a beautiful three-story structure that did not exist when the Lalaris resided on the property. When the Lalaris purchased the mansion, it stood only two stories high and had been under continuous renovations for years. Delphine Lalaurie bought it and finished it. This will be important information for later. For now, I'm sure you're all wondering about Elle. As I said in our last podcast, Elle's name has been widely disputed. She is, however, a staple figure surrounding the popularization of Lalaurie's crimes. She's the reason the Lalaurie's were first thought to have broken the Connoir, except the Code Noir itself is widely misunderstood. In popular ghost story retellings of our tale, the Code Noir specific to French colonial Louisiana is described as a code of law meant to protect enslaved black people from any violence inflicted by their enslavers. Based on archived translations of the code, this was far from the truth. The code itself proved to be more of a means to control black people living in the South, and to make it immensely more difficult for enslavers to free any people they had enslaved. Perhaps this is why there are no records from the Supreme Court of Louisiana against the Lalaris for mistreatment towards those being forced to work in their home. It's likely that Elle may never have existed. 
A more upsetting theory is that her existence, her incredibly violent death, is nothing more than a historical rumor. If that is the case, perhaps it isn't her ghost that haunts the mansion today. Perhaps it is the guilt of onlookers who, deep down, know they are willingly disregarding the complexities of a human being in favor of bearing witness to an act of violence. In short, people have a tendency to avoid digging deep. It is far simpler to cry outrage than to unravel how societies bully and suppress some of its members. The Supreme Court of Louisiana does not have any records of any cases against the Laloris for any of the crimes for which history has blamed them. In December of 1832, however, a court case did arise under Delphine Laloris' maiden name, McCarty. Delphine had petitioned against the Steam Cotton Press Company in order to retain succession of Steam Cotton Press on behalf of her minor children for the ownership of the company that had belonged to her deceased second husband, Jean Blanc. The court records show that it was believed Lalaurie was seeking money, and that the Steam Cotton Press Company did not want her and Blanc's daughters to own any part of the company, in fear that they might sell it and thus cause good men to become unemployed. In the end, the court decided that Delphine's children would retain succession and receive a stipend from the company until they became of age. There are not many records from before the fire that might indicate how society viewed the Lalaris. I would hypothesize that Delphine especially was not well-liked. By the time she married her third and final husband, she was the sole proprietor of her money and of her property. Based on the court records, I think I was not wrong in thinking that she was not your average rich white woman at the time. Her husband was a surgeon, yes, he was well respected. The historical record, however, demonstrates that Delphine was impressive in her finances and in her independent endeavors. This is mere conjecture, of course, but remember that in an era when women were the chattel, the property of the men when they married, Delphine appeared in court one succession of a large company, and proceeded to host large and lavish parties in her mansion, a mansion she had paid for herself. Her path is indeed extraordinary, though this cannot in any way serve as an apology for the crimes history claims she committed. Other than newspaper clippings, no definite documentation exists of the murders that occurred in the Lalaurie mansion. In fact, most of the stories about what firefighters found when the fire engulfed the home in 1834 cannot be substantiated for one simple reason. It's very likely that first responders were not able to enter the home, since the flames were so overwhelming that they completely destroyed the mansion's foundation. 
The fire of April 10th, 1834, left nothing in its wake but ashes and stone. Well, that's not entirely true, questions remained. Where did the Lalleries go? And what were they running away from? Although it might have been surmised that they had perished in the inferno, everyone assumed that the family had fled to Paris. French archivists have unofficially confirmed this rumor through death certificates under what is believed to be a name Delphine Dallary had adopted following the events in New Orleans. But I was unable to receive the paperwork before this podcast was made. Nevertheless, the house we look at today is not the house where the horrific crimes that were rumored to have occurred took place. The three-story house we know today was built five years after the fire. Perhaps this is why later guests seemed to believe there were ghosts in the walls and in the vents. If the ghosts exist, maybe they were only following the layout they used to know. The Vicksburg Whig is believed to be the first newspaper to cover the story following the fire. They outlined how it started in the morning and began in the kitchen of the home. The most damning part of the small clipping was its detailed accounts of the enslaved people who emerged from the fire with varying injuries that seemed to have been inflicted before the fire began. A reporter claimed to have spoken to Delphine Lalaurie's husband, who turned the reporter away. The clipping ended with a demand for the Lalaurie's to be brought to the Supreme Court. The article gives a retelling that diverges sharply from the historical record. One of the two must have gotten the facts muddled. The popular belief is that the fire began at night and that the Lalaurie's fled immediately. If the Vicksburg Whig was correct in its retelling, then it successfully showcased how little white society regarded the safety of enslaved people at the time. Or more attention would have been paid to the injured prior to the fire. If, however, the article played loosely with the facts, it may well be the genesis of a horrific storytelling tradition. Following the Vicksburg Whig newspaper clipping, newspapers continued to release the story using increasingly gruesome details for over a hundred years after the fire. A late 1800s article outlined how scam artists had set up a money-making scheme within the rebuilt haunted house. They had hired actors to stomp on the roof and scream into the vents to scare visitors. In 1931, the Times-Picayune published an article stating that the house was haunted, and that Madame Delphine Lalaurie, who had been chased out of town by an angry mob, was the sole murderer and source of the hauntings related to her mansion. They wrote that if you pass the house at night, you may be roused by a ghostly wail from the shadows, or see a light at an upper window. In 1945, another newspaper outlined how Delphine Lalaurie had created a torture chamber in the upper levels of the mansion, 
and how she hosted parties where guests could participate in socially questionable acts. In 1954, another published an article titled The Devil's Daughter and spoke of Delphine Lalaurie as a cultured and refined murderess who targeted enslaved black people. In 2013, Delphine Lalaurie was portrayed as an immortal murderer on the television show American Horror Story Coven. It seems likely that the increasingly gruesome details result more from the particular proclivities of successive writers than from actual fact. Slowly, the young surgeon husband disappeared from the narrative. Despite his documented presence at the time of the events, Delphine Lalaurie's children and family and witnesses bore no blame for whatever happened in the house on Royal Street. Ultimately, I do not know what happened in 1834. I don't think any of us could possibly know. The Lalauries are surely not faultless. They were enslavers after all. It is, however, worth noting that history has forced Delphine, with her independence, her riches, and younger husband, to shoulder all the blame. More importantly, it's worth noting that despite the outrage and the blame, no one has stopped to look at this ghostly tale and offer a moment of silence for all the lives lost to slavery. The tale of Delphine Lalaurie has morphed into a ghost story. And even when they are based on real events, ghost stories are meant to be entertaining, are they not? Except that the narrative of this particular ghost story is embedded with real people. People who were enslaved they are protagonists who somehow end up not being the focus, who have neither names nor faces and who are hidden in the gaps. Their deaths inspire shock but not respect. The emphasis on shock bellies the guilt. It also hides an ugly fact. The consequences of slavery still always haunt us. Though Delphine Lalaurie remains a mystery, her story and the choices made in its retelling never fail to summon the demons of our past. That is why I want to end today's podcast with love. I want to send love to my friends whose varying identities have shaped their experiences as they walk through the world. I want to send love to the storytellers who struggle to preserve history in a way that will not damage the future. I hope you come back for one last podcast, as there's one more story to share with you. If you do, try not to let today's ghost story shadow your dreams. Until then, breathe, and thank you for listening.